everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg. And of course, if you haven't already, if you could like, subscribe, and share, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, we're on iTunes and SoundCloud if you're just listening to this in audio form as well. Uh, so the things we want to talk about today, uh, first we're going to talk about should the video game developers industry, should they unionize? A, a lot of horror stories about crunch time and terrible work environment and things like that. Then we're going to talk about the Overwatch League and how they last week uh, someone had leaked the code of conduct rules. There's some interesting stuff in there about what it takes to be an Overwatch pro. Uh, we're going to talk about Street Fighter was really uh, recently announced that they're going to be doing a new TV series based off of Street Fighter. And finally, we're going to talk about Ubisoft finally being rid of Vivendi, who's been trying to do a hostile takeover for the last couple of years. So to begin, uh, we're going to start with uh, should game developers unionize? So first I want to lay a basis for kind of the story and what's going on and then I'll throw my own opinions in as we go throughout. But basically the reason this came up now is last week was GDC, which is the Game Developers Conference. And there it seemed like the story was picking up a lot of news because there, there seemed to be a lot more people pushing the agenda of having game workers unite. There were flyers being handed out pins, buttons, things like that. They were hosting um, the, the head of uh, IGDA, I always screw that up, IGDA, is the International Game Developers Association. So uh, the head of that, she was going to be doing a roundtable on the pros and cons of, of uh, you know, unions, I suppose. Um, so a little bit about that company real quick. The, ID, uh, the IGDA uh, advocates on issues that exceed the scope of a developer or a company's ability to resolve. They require a dialogue with others. They affect the global game development community. They benefit the entire development community rather than any single individual or company. And they are neutral toward any particular skill, product, or method of game development. Now, here's on their website what they list as some of the key issues that they're addressing, including the following. Violence in video games and related social issues sexism and discrimination in the game industry, sexism and diversity in game content, quality of life, including crunch time, work-life balance, etc., internet freedom and privacy, positive impact of video games, credit standards, game accessibility, and employment contract fairness. Uh, and then lastly, on the the IGDA website, it says much of IGDA's advocacy ability activity occurs through the Anti-Censorship and Social Issues Committee. However, each and every member of the IGDA is a, is a developer advocate who is encouraged to stand up or speak out. So this is sort of the main, right now, this is the main group that's, it's an advocacy group, which means they're, you know, if you have the ESA, that's the advocacy group for game publishers and game, you know, game studios. This would be the advocacy group for the workers that work on those games to kind of put everything out there. So, uh, so as of recently, uh, it's, it started popping up that should they unionize and probably the main argument that you would want to have to be pro union. And this is something that goes back a very long time. Quite honestly, the reason unions were created in the first place was because they were being taken advantage of by their employers. Um, unions, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into a whole political thing here, but unions were basically created, like I said, because of employers taking advantage of them. So certain things like a 40 hour work week that was, you know, pushed and, and put into place by unions, overtime laws, um, you know, sick leave, sick pay, sick day, stuff like that. All that sort of stuff came because unions threatened basically to walk off the job. And since they had everybody who worked there to be a part of that union, the, the, the company they were working for really couldn't say no. And there are certainly, um, 
instances of union abuse as well, where they take this whole thing and they start threatening over higher wages and, and sometimes even have teachers unions where they'll want to stop teaching students because they want a pay raise. Now, again, if they're not making enough money, I think they should be able to do that. But that that's sort of what... Um, you know, there's definitely goods and bads to unions in general. In fact, I think the battle between unions and companies is what's ultimately good for us. Think of it as, you know, it's always good that there's always a PlayStation and an Xbox and a Nintendo. Competition's good for the consumer. When you have unions and companies fighting, I think that's really good for us because it's got, you're kind of keeping a standard. You've got the company being responsible, and then you've got the um, union taking care of the employees. So that's kind of the give and take. And, and in a perfect world, they'd be giving and taking all the time. You know, you, you let some things up so you can get something else. And that's essentially what this all should be about. And obviously, sometimes companies go too far and sometimes unions go too far. No one's perfect, certainly. But one of the, one of the things that was said at... Um, it was a union organizer for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees in Los Angeles was kind of giving a speech about it. And one of the quotes was, quote, if you're not at the table, you're essentially on the menu, end quote. That was by Steve Kaplan. So what they're trying to say is if you're not part of the union, then they're going to eat you up and spit you out. Now, why does this matter in the video game development? Well, <laughs> there's a couple reasons. One, video game development is incredibly sought after environment. Um, everyone you talk to has an idea for a game. They want to make a game. Not everyone has the skills to do that, but everybody wants to do that. I even, even myself, I have made a game to completion. Me and a few friends right out of college, we made a game. We started it. We finished it. We put it online for free. No, I won't tell you what it is because yes, it is God awful. <laughs> but it, so I understand what essentially would be considered crunch time, and I understand the difficulties in game development, but I also understand that everybody has a dream to want to do it. Most of us that enjoy this hobby have a million ideas in our head that say, man, if I just knew how to program, I would make a game, right? So you have a lot of people that want into this industry, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, except when companies realize that and realize they don't have to work hard to keep their current employees. And I know this is not quite the same thing, but when I worked at GameStop, GameStop was a very, very, very sought after position when I was working there you know, eight, nine, ten years ago. It was what everybody wanted to work there. Everybody in town would come in. You got hundreds of applications on a stack in your desk. I'm talking just like a fat stack. And anytime I wanted to, if one of my employees wasn't great, I could just go there and be like, okay, well, I'll find. I got 2,000 people here looking for a job. One of them's bound to be good. But I never did that because I found good people and I retained good people. And I think part of your success is retaining quality people. So, but when you have a lot of applicants, someone can't threaten and say, well, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to quit because that company will say, okay, well, you can quit and I'll hire somebody cheaper than I'm paying you now because they'll do anything to break into the industry. And that's kind of crappy, you know, because that, that doesn't help the person who gets the job really, because then they're not making a fair wage there and they'll do anything to get the job. And then it doesn't help the person who obviously loses their job just because they wanted to have a more realistic pay. So moving a little bit beyond that. So then you also have, uh, so you've got the issue where a ton of people want the job and you don't really feel like you're a needed part of the team. And that's also why there's such high burnout on things like programmers, because programmers aren't as common as writers and, and game designers and even animators now and stuff like that. So when you're burning out a programmer, though, and they get burned out, those, those people get paid a lot because they're burning out and they're constantly wanting to leave because of crunch. So what is crunch? So if you've ever heard of crunch time, um, it, it's, it's basically the idea that it's, 
works getting down to the wire. You've got a deadline to meet and you have to hit that deadline. You've got maybe say a month left and you've got two months worth of work to do. You know what that means? That means you go into crunch time, which crunch time is working until the job is finished or working until you get the product out so that it's out on time. Now, a lot of people would say, okay, that that's what happens when you're in an industry that's um, that's garnered by deadlines. You have to meet the holidays. You have to meet quarterly, you know, goals for stockholders. Like these are realistic things. This is the business side of game development. You have to. I mean, that's just that's just the truth of it all. But when you get into crunch time, it can be very stressful. Uh, there are tons of horror stories out there. Um, one of them here was a guy who was working on Skyrim basically for like a month didn't wasn't sleeping hardly at all and just had these incredible stomach pains and didn't know why and went to the doctor the doctor's like we don't know why you have these stomach pains and eventually basically told him to take off work for a couple weeks he did that and the stomach pain just magically went away now again stress is a real thing and stress having a physical impact on your body is also a very real thing some people handle stress better than others though too and some people some people live or die by that you know got to dig in, got to have this incredible, like fast paced madness thing going on. A lot of people strive in that environment and, and a lot of people are more stressed out about it. And, and what sucks is it's not like the jobs like that 24 seven, like you don't sign up to be a game developer going, I can handle stress really well. You ha you sign up for game development because maybe you're a really good artist or maybe a really good sound designer or something like that. So crunch time is very real. So you've also got horror stories of mandatory crunch time where you've got people working like um, one, one of the stories here that I read was one of the one of the people was required to work from 9 a.m. until 10 p.m. seven days a week, but would possibly get off for good behavior on Saturday nights at 630. I mean, imagine that. What what kind of life can you live if you're working 13 hours a day, seven days a week. You have none. That's 91 hours a week of work. The average person works 35 to 40 hours a week. So, I, and I can also comment on that a little bit because when I first opened my store, I was the only employee and I was open six days a week. So I worked Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. So I put in, you know, now that was the hours we were open. I should say, realistically, it was like 9 to 8.30. So let's just say 9 to 9 most nights to be safe as I was getting out late and doing whatever. So I was working 12-hour days, six days a week. That's 72 hours I was putting in every week at my store. Now, a little bit different, though, is it wasn't a deadline thing. It was just, you know, in the early days, especially when you're kind of slow and you just open, it's you're more of a babysitter anyway. So I could play games at work. It was fine. I had no problem working 72 hours a week because I wasn't working 72 hours straight. But in game development here, if you can imagine, the reason you're there that long is because you have to get something done. Can you imagine having to work 13 hours a day straight, knowing and, and working this for a month or two out, knowing you don't have a day off coming for who knows when? It's crazy. And and I used to get frustrated at GameStop because when I worked there, uh, when I well when I originally worked there, it was November and December were mandatory six day work weeks. We were salaried managers. We'd get paid no extra. And all they would do is say, okay, but now you have to work instead of your 44, you have to work 52 hours this week. And you're like, okay, I mean, I guess I, that sucks. And just, just because it was a holiday season. Now they did that because as salaried employees, we didn't make any more money. So they got extra work out of us when we were busy, instead of having to drop a bunch of money into the stores. Smart from a corporate perspective, I guess, but not really smart from an employee retention perspective, right? So, and, and they didn't care because again, desk full of applications, right? So 
that all this talk started to come out unionizing. Those are the two real big reasons that they want to unionize. They want to kill crunch time, which I don't think will ever go away, but I think there need to be protections in place. Like, I think it's fair to say, you know, you work 40 to 50 hours a week during crunch time, you have to work 50 to 60 hours a week. I think that's okay. And I think if that's in a contract, when you sign up, you should know that getting into game development, you should know there are deadlines and there are going to be times when you have to work extra hard. You have to work an extra day during the week. I think that's okay. But what we, so, but there's a big difference between that and going all the way to working 91 hours a week with no days off for a month straight. And here's what you start to have happen at the really, really big companies like your EAs and your Activisions. They have multiple releases throughout the entire year. So at any given time at EA, there's always a game in crunch time, right? So when you have a big studio that's moving people around that need help, you might actually get put in a situation where you're in a perpetual state of crunch time. So you just finish up crunch on your game. Normally that game ships. You should be able to be, you know, take a break, take a breather. Nope, you just got shifted to another project that just entered crunch because in four weeks that game's coming out and it needs to be done. And especially with someone like QA who works on all their games, you know, like sound designers who work across multiple games, it's crunch, crunch, crunch. And you might go on crunch for six months to a year. There's there's stories of that in here. And that's just madness. A whole year of working 90 hours a week. Could you even imagine that? I, I can't. And I'm somebody who used to work 72 hours a week. Uh, and I'll also say when I had that one day off a week, when I had my store, it was, or when I have in the early days of having my store, I still have my store. Uh, the early days of that, it was like having, I actually was going to do seven days a week and I was thinking about it, but I didn't even have time to do laundry if I worked seven days a week. And, and I was thinking to myself, I can't, I can't live like this, you know? So I did the six days a week for two and a half years. I did six and a half or six days a week all by myself, two and a half years then finally hired an employee to work Sundays and Tuesdays. So I would get, you know, I was only working five days a week and I was open seven days a week. And then from there on just more and more employees to now where I only work 40 hours a week, um, which, which is awesome. And, it, and it's really, really great. Uh, and obviously I stay late if I have to, did someone just bring in a big trade at eight Oh five and I have a sale coming up in a week and I need to get all this stuff processed out for a sale. Yeah, I'll stay late. Of course it's my store. It's a little bit different, but I don't expect my employees to put in more than their 40 hours a week. Just don't do it. You know, and if it was crunch time, I could pay them overtime if I wanted to, but we don't ever need to get to that point. Like I can absorb that. Cause again, I'm the owner. I take that responsibility as opposed to here where you've got employees that you're essentially forcing. Because the other thing about the game industry is that not only are there a lot of people that want to do it, it's also a passion filled industry. People who work on these things want to do this more than anything in their whole life, probably. And so you've, you're taking advantage of that. These big companies are taking advantage of that to, to an extent because what they want is their product to come on time for money. But what the people who are working on the game want is to make an awesome game. Now, a lot of big companies also think short-term smart and long-term stupid. That's what something like take, like kind of abusing your workers does to you. And I think you've seen it now with the fall of Toys R Us and you saw it with the fall of Circuit City way back when, is that as companies lose the good employees because they want to get cheaper employees, they think they're saving money, but they're losing customers in the long run. And, and I don't know, I can't speak for everywhere, but I know where I live, the Toys R Us and the Circuit City had terrible service. The Best Buy also had terrible service, but they somehow switched it and flipped it around before crashing and burning. Best Buy's made quite the turnaround as a company in the last, you know, five to 10 years uh, into a store that I actually quite like going to. And, and so you're almost taking advantage of the passion that these people have for game development. So, 
getting further into that, what I wanted to talk a little bit about was, so we were just talking about the IGDA, and the uh, the head of that is Jean McLean. And uh, so she did a, a, a podcast with a, there was a, there's a round table that was going to happen. And before that, there was a, she had a sit down with someone from Kotaku. And so uh, from J, for Jason Schreier. So, uh, sorry, it was Jen McLean. My apologies, not Jean, Jen. So Jen McLean uh, was asked a few questions. I'm just going to read these and quote these here because some of this is really interesting stuff. So Jason asks from Kotaku, I guess I just don't see what else in an action that developers can take other than unionizing? What else can they possibly do in order to create protections for themselves? To which Jen McLean replies, quote, I don't know if there's an answer to that, and that's a terrible answer to your question. I wish I had an alternative, but here's an example from my personal life. My dad was a postal clerk, unionized job. The unions were able to provide certain protections. If you got injured as a postal clerk, you were very well taken care of. You couldn't be moved to a certain position without your permission, but he had mandated overtime every November and December. Worse than any crunch I've seen in game development because Christmas cards. The unions can't stop Christmas cards, and I think we have to have that discussion about what a union can change and what can't a union change, and what are some potential consequences. This is true for any decision we make. There are always going to be seen and unforeseen circumstances. The best thing we can do for global game development community is have this discussion and better understand what our options are. End quote. So... I'm not a big fan of that argument because, but she notes that in other industries, there is essentially a crunch, a crunch time. The post office has a crunch time during November, December, when people are mailing cards, when they're, you know, when they're mailing more packages, when they're buying more things as gifts online. So you've got time. I mean, like UPS actually adds a second person to all of their routes once, you know, around the holiday time, because they need two people to deal with all the extra packages they have. Same with FedEx and, and, uh, the post office, I'm sure, I don't know the specifics with post office crunch time, but yes, you're going to run into an issue where it's a little bit busier. Um, but I don't think, and now they're unionized, but I don't think that the post office is requiring 91 hour work weeks. Um, so then, uh, Jason goes on to ask if the discussion doesn't lead anywhere, it's just the status quo. It's just people accepting that status quo. And also there are different types of unionization. As you discussed, there's a guild model, the discipline model. The one that worked for our company is company unionizing as a company. That's talking about Kotaku. I can see that working at game studios where some studios have different ways of working. Some studios want different things at our union shop. We decided we're not going to bargain about hours. We're not going to talk about just cause. We are going to fight for salary floors. We're going to fight for protecting our benefits. We decided as we were bargaining that worked for us. And he, and he says, I can see that model working with studios. What works at Ubisoft Montreal might be different than what works at Naughty Dog in Los Angeles. And the pros and cons will depend on the studio in question. So he makes a really good point. Again, this is the, the, the interviewer, is that it's, it's not going to be easy to have a game developer union that works because all the different companies. Uh, there's so many different ones. But I could see everyone at Ubisoft should unionize. Everyone at EA should unionize, that sort of thing. You know, I'm, I'm kind of with them on that. And again, it is, this is, you know, new territory for this industry. And the interesting thing about the video game industry is we've spent a lot of time, we've actually got to live through the growing pains of the industry. So, you know, the movie industry and the music industry have been around for, for, you know, decades, I'm gonna, like a hundred years. So we, we didn't get to see that how in the beginning, the early days of people being taken advantage of and then rules coming into place to protect people, all that stuff. The video game industry, we're watching it in real time as an old industry that's itself only about 40 years old, 40 to 50 years old at, at most. 
So we're seeing this really interesting, like we get to see all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. We're seeing the Congress fighting with them over violent video games. We're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing the unionization possibly of game development workers. We're seeing the, the sexual harassment and, and sexual, uh, uh, employee diversity. Um, you know, all, we're seeing all the growing pains of an industry going through that for the first time until it eventually gets big enough where it can handle, you know, and, and have worked out all these, you know, kinks that it takes to, you know, to figure out this industry. And it's, it's a very long process with a lot of ups and downs, but we actually get to see it as opposed to other industries where it's already been worked out long before we came along. Um, so one other thing though, that I wanted to touch upon was, uh, so again, the interviewer says, uh, some studios might say, Hey, we're okay with crunching. We don't want to fight the hours, but we want to make sure that we have those bonuses and they're the same amount, no matter if you're male, female, male or female there are a lot of different protections i think at least for me the premise is not should we unionize or should we not it's what should we be fighting for as workers because i feel like workers need protections like you said there is no other action they can take and that is to me a problem i don't see what else people can do to fight this to which jen mclean replies for me i look at this from a slightly different perspective which is how can we increase workers leverage by increasing demand for workers part of it i believe is access to capital the games industry as a hit driven business does not have the access to venture capital that you see in a lot of tech industries that's something i'd love i'd love for us to look at as an industry how can we do something like sundance film festival how can we create a system that gives smaller indies more leverage against publishers so they can break out of the publisher treadmill but to assume that suddenly if you unionize everything will be great i don't think is a reasonable assumption and i do think we have to have these conversations about what does unionizing studio by studio mean if you're mr bazillionaire running the publisher and you have one studio that's unionized one that isn't where do you allocate your funding end quote so th th those are a couple good points one i do agree with her is that if there was more capital in the games industry you'd have less people beholden to these large publishers so you wouldn't have everyone going man i, I gotta get money from ea because they're the only one willing to give us money to publish a game and then you make a successful game couple games in a row they buy you as a company and then that studio after being shuffled around and moved doesn't make the biggest hit and then they dissolve you and just move you into ea's in a general capacity and that's kind of the ea and activision way of the last 20 years 20 30 years probably realistically now and, and so th th i agree that just unionizing isn't necessarily going to fix all the problems but i do believe that they need to have smaller unions at each company like i would love to see ea unionize its workers i'd like to see protections for interns interns are often people just trying to get into the business often unpaid working full-time hours unpaid just so that they can have a shot at their dream and stuff like that it's really um really you know i don't know not not good stuff um and again it's up to the company to not take advantage of that and unfortunately, that's why unions need to exist. That's why um, laws need to exist. That's why, um, you know, there's a, an EPA because, you know, if it was just up to the companies making as much money as they could, they would save money by dumping all their toxic waste into the river because that's cheaper than having it properly disposed of. But you can't do that because you have people who live down the river who drink that water. I mean, it's, it's simple stuff like that, but this is sort of the time we're in where, it should be the company should be fiscally responsible and responsible to you know the environment that they exist in but they don't and that's why you have to come up with laws and regulations and why you have to have unions because most companies don't go above and beyond to be a positive experience uh it, they have to be forced into it by law because by definition a corporation is a profit generator they they are required by law to do as much as they can to maximize profit 
as as a as a reward to their shareholders but they'll do whatever they can within the law and that's why regulations and laws and, and unions have to exist because they need to be put into check and i think that's what something that unions do so lastly i want to finish up with a couple horror stories that i found uh, a couple more so we have uh let's see here um this is one person's uh so there was something actually called it was the uh, ea spouse and this was a this was quite a few years ago and it was someone who was like a, a spouse of someone who worked at ea and and they basically came out and, and like wrote this just scathing report about the conditions of ea so uh so when uh, asked an anonymous developer about the condition of their uh, being anonymous and why it felt necessary, the dev first quoted the EA spouse, Aaron Hoffman. So this was the EA spouse. Quote, I am retaining some um, anonymity here because I have no illusions of what the consequences would be for my family if I was explicit. However, I also feel no impetus to shy away from sharing our story because I know that it is too common to stick out among those of the thousands of engineers, artists, and designers that EA employs. And then they use their own words to say, it is understood that major publishers have the litigation dollars to sue you into submission. They may not actually follow through, but the implied threat is enough to make people remain quiet. Frankly, it's not worth the risk to go out publicly. And on top of that, the industry is a very small place. It may forgive, but it rarely forgets. And I think that's very true. You have an industry that a lot of people know each other and are connected. And someone says, hey, you know, that person that left, I wouldn't hire him because they were making a big fuss over here about having to work in crunch time. And I, you don't want to deal with the hassle. Just, just forget it. Just hire somebody else who won't, who won't do that. And that's crazy. I mean, that's, it's, it's crazy to think that, uh, that, that you could not get hired at another company because you felt like you were abused at the previous company. It's called blacklisted or, or blackballed or whatever. And, and it, it happens. And, um, uh, let's see, uh, here, uh, for most game developers, the crunch is a fact of life. An industry survey of approximately 1,000 developers found that 52% of those surveyed put in between 40 and 60 hour work weeks during a crunch period, while 32% put in 61 to 80 hours or more. So you've got half the people working a normal 40 to 60 hours, and then you have 32% putting in 61 to 80 hours. Um, uh, asked to measure the impact crunch cycles have on their social and family life, 1% of developers responded it has a very positive impact. 4% developers said it had a somewhat positive impact. 17% see no impact. 50% see a somewhat negative impact. And 28% see a very negative impact. So that is 78% combined see a somewhat to very negative impact crunch time has on their social and family life included. In general, developers start reporting a negative impact on their social slash family lives when crunch schedules exceed 50 hour weeks. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that sums about up right there. I mean, those are developers anonymously saying that it affects their home and their whatever. Like, and you know, we all work, we all have stuff we have to take home with us. As a business owner, I'm never unplugged from my phone. I have to have my phone on at all nights uh, in case the alarm goes off at the store or in case there's an emergency at the store and they need to get a hold of me. I almost can't even turn my phone off when I'm at movies. I have to silence it. And if it buzzes a bunch of times, I have to get up out of the movie and go check it to make sure nothing's wrong. It's really crazy stuff, you know? And, and, and so I understand that uh, we all have things in our job. We all have times where our job sucks and something doesn't happen. But there's a difference between your job being kind of a crappy job or not liking what you do and loving what you do and using that against you to take advantage of you and your work ethic. And so um, here's another one. Quote, it kind of crept on. It was like, hey guys, want to 
uh, we're going to be ordering food on Tuesday and Thursday every week. If you're staying past 7 p.m., if you have a lot of work to do, email us and we'll make sure you get a meal. For a month or two, that arrangement stood. But then another email went out adding another day to the list and then another. Uh, quote, it's in its final form. It was lunch and dinner Monday through Saturday, and then some people were coming in on Sundays. So these are just some of the weird stories that people were telling about crunch time and development. Um, and the word crunch was never used. They just started, basically they were stealth crunching, where they're like, hey, if you guys are sticking around, you know, we're going to have dinner at 7 o'clock, so if you're still here at 7 and you're still working through dinner, you know, we'll buy you dinner. It's almost like a way to get people to stay late with a promise of free food. <laughs> it's terrible. Um so, and this is one of the final quotes. Uh, this is people coming in at nine, working all day, leaving at 10, 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning, depending on what they were doing, and then coming back the next morning and doing it all over again, six to seven days a week. To my knowledge, five couples got a divorce because of this. Almost the entire creative leadership has now quit after shipping the game. It was toxic. It was a very toxic environment. And lastly, the developer said, quote, my relationships became affected. I became affected as a person. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating very well. I was going out to drink a lot, and it was the only way to deal uh, shirking work because you feel the anxiety. I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd be like, oh, God, I have to go to work. I do not want to get out of bed today because I don't want to deal with this crap. Because if people on the ground are feeling this, it means the leads are feeling this, the execs are feeling it, and they push down harder and make it feel worse. As they say, the crap rolls downhill. And so this just comes to some of the quotes from different people in the industry talking about their um, perspective with crunch. So that's where I kind of want to end that story. But again, very interesting stuff. If you are a game developer, even a small one, if you have... Uh, you know, worked in the industry and you have any experience with this, I would love to hear about it. Put it in the comments or you can private message us and uh, I'd love to chat about it sometime and, and, and push further on that. It'd be a really interesting read, I think. So moving on, our next story we want to talk about was Overwatch. So a lot of people play Overwatch. It's a pretty popular game, uh, obviously, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, one of the first games to have its own league. So we have the OWL, which is the Overwatch League. And uh, a professional gaming league. It's very cool. There's uh, teams. They play four nights a week. Uh, they have these huge seasons, you know, and, and players get paid to play. So last week, though, uh, someone leaked the official Overwatch League's code of conduct, um, which, you know, it's whatever. I mean, it's basically this is, this is a, a set of guidelines and rules, which all major sports leagues have. You have one in the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball. You all have these rules in place. It's basically a set of league rules that if you break these rules... Um, you can be terminated and you can get fired and that's, and that's fine. And, and obviously rules need to be in place for certain things. You have, you don't want to ruin the brand. You don't want to damage anything. You want to make your product as appealing as possible. And you want the people playing that product to be as appealing as possible to as many people as possible. So obviously you have things like, you know, oh, you can't use certain derogatory terms. You can't use derogatory, you know, hand expressions, you know, give, giving the middle finger, stuff like that. You, you, you know, if you're streaming on your own time, you know, you can't say racist things, which I did a story a few months ago about uh, Felix uh, XQC. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible. I don't, I don't watch pro gaming. So I apologize. Uh, XQC Felix Lengiel. So I did a story on him where basically, you know, he got suspended for, uh, making fun of another player, uh, and stuff like that. So, uh, so there was a couple interesting things though, about this one. Uh, we're going to, we're going to go through the, the more important, uh, points here. So 
there were uh, two things that were leaked. One was the player streaming policy and the league's official rulebook, which was labeled version 1.0. Uh, apparently, the official rulebook does is very similar to the rulebooks for Heroes of the Storm and for uh, and the rulebook for Overwatch Contenders, which is like the minor league for Overwatch, uh, the Overwatch official pro league. Um, the streaming policy, though, is structured more like a question and answer. So it's like, can I do this? And then the answer is no, you cannot do that. So, uh, this was, um, the, the, here's how it begins. I just want to go right into this. So it talks about what players can do on their personal Twitch YouTube channels. The league has a rule against more than two overwatch league players joining up to play together because they consider that quote, they will be deemed to be playing as a team. On, end quote so the pros can't stream any game together the pros can't stream any game quote during the period of one hour before and one hour after any league event end quote so um which again they play four nights a week so you can only stream on your days off or you have to stream like early in the morning if you're playing like a late night match or something so you can't stream before or after you um which I think that's sort of like the, the NFL's policy on things like tweeting during a game. Like you can't tweet an hour before or after or something. I don't know if it's, they don't want, I don't know. I don't know what that could possibly be. Maybe because there wouldn't be enough time to issue like a suspension for something if it was right before the game. I don't know. Uh, then you have uh, the streaming of all Blizzard games must be in standard game modes. So you can't have mods, obviously no cheats or other software that impacts the performance of the game. So yeah, duh, they're saying that you can't be a cheater, or a, a modder, or a hacker when you're not officially playing. Even if it's in a casual game, you can't do that. Okay, makes total sense. Um, pro players are also not allowed to stream any other organized competitive play, such as any tournament or custom game. So I guess that kind of makes sense. They're not saying you can't stream any other game, but you can't stream an organized competitive play. So like if you're an Overwatch League player, you can't play in like an officially streamed like Dota 2 or League of Legends game, which I guess that makes sense, except, you know, I mean, come on, it, you know, I, I guess it makes sense that like an NFL player can't all of a sudden go compete. I guess he could compete in an NBA game. Actually, there's no rule against that. But maybe, like, an NFL player couldn't do that and then go play for, like, the Arena Football League or something. I don't know. Maybe they could. I, re I really don't understand uh, what, what that would matter, quite honestly. Um, so, yeah, so if for some reason you're not playing Overwatch, you know, you have to, like, be careful about what you say. Uh, so then we talk about player politeness on Twitch. Here's some, uh, here's some of the language, which seems a little vague and kind of grabby for anything so it says quote in no event may any streaming include any video game content actions comments language or other materials that could be expected to bring any player the league any of its teams any direct or indirect owner of any team any executive or any other employee of the league activision blizzard or any of its games products and services or any broadcaster distributor sponsor licensee or other business partner of the league of any of its teams into disrepute. So they're saying, so, so basically you can't do anything that might hurt the image of the league, the players, the employees, anybody else. You can't do anything that has anything to do with anybody else that might be offensive. Okay. Again, you're protecting the image of the league. And that, that language though is so vague because you could say anything like you could flip off the camera on stream. Are you supposed to get kicked off the league for that? Would that make any sense? Um, should you do it? No, probably not. But it, it doesn't mean that, that you should be, you know, suspended for that. You know, I mean, part of, part of what makes sports interesting is you have rivalries. Part of what makes rivalries interesting is the competition between the two. And oftentimes a good rivalry has trash talking and stuff like that. So I understand they're trying to keep it clean. 
and they have to do that. They have to protect their image. They have to keep it clean. But you also, that's a little bit vague, you know, that this gives them the reason to kick out anybody for really any reason they want. They can find, I think you could find anything that you could kick somebody off for, basically. Um, so now what disrepute might be is described as any activity that results in scandal or ridicule or shocks or offends the community, end quote. I, I mean, doesn't everybody kind of get offended by something nowadays? I mean, it's just how it is. So I mean, you feel like you'd be walking on eggshells all the time playing this. So are they just going to have to be robots like sitting at their computer when they're all done? They just some high fives and, and, and like they don't have any personality that, that worries me. You know, when you, part of the reason that people watch professional sports or esports is because you like the players and, and you like a certain person. You want to follow that, you know? Um, uh, so like I said, the NFL has a league that's anything considered conduct detrimental to the integrity of public confidence. Uh, the NBA does not have that, but they have something that just says the uh, any alleged player misconduct. So again, misconduct, it's it's just open, you know, say whatever you want. Um, let's see here. So then we have, uh, <laughs> we still have, uh, in a section of the streaming policy called the off-limits list, the league lays out rules about how players can accept sports how players can't accept sponsorships. So here's what we have um, in regards to that. You cannot accept sponsorships or marketing affiliations with porn sites, gambling and casino comp gambling and casino companies, distributors of tobacco, hard alcohol, cannabis, non-Blizzard games, and any anything else that they would uh, also consider a political candidate or ballot initiative. So I guess they can't put their name on like a rock the vote or get out the vote sort of thing, which is really unfortunate because you'd want to use them to help maybe empower young people to vote. So that that's a little disappointing. Um, obviously, some of this stuff makes sense. Like, I'm sure the NFL has a similar thing. Like, you can't be the face of the league and then have your face on Pornhub, you know? Uh, gambling and casino, that makes sense. Distributors of tobacco, hard alcohol, and cannabis make sense because a lot of young people would watch them. And if a lot of younger people are watching it, they're trying to keep sponsorship to other things. Um you know, to like appropriate things. It doesn't say anything about not being able to do mice, keyboards, headsets, t-shirt lines, you know, gaming accessories, you know, uh, gamer water. If you, uh, watch, um, if you watch, uh, Ethan Ela, um, but, uh, H3H3, but, uh, so, uh, and here's another weird thing. The league has the right to ask players to take down any content they wish. And if the pros refuse to comply, they'll be subject to discipline from the league. Um, and that league also has the right to use and exploit any of the pro players' streams of Blizzard games for any purpose, such as advertising. The league can also modify the stream policy at any time. So what they're also saying is, if you're streaming a Blizzard game and you're part of the Overwatch League, even though you're not playing it in a tournament or anything organized by Blizzard, you, they, they own the rights to that stream to do whatever they want with it. And that's crazy to me too. Like that's you on your own time. Like that's like saying like, and I know I keep making references to the NFL here, but that's like saying that Aaron Rodgers, right? So whenever he's not playing the game, if he wants to go out and throw a football outside, like the NFL can use him throwing the football outside for all their promotional stuff. It just seems kind of weird. Like, or it's like, say he, he joined a competition where it was like, Hey, I'm going to throw footballs. And if I can throw a hundred or whatever, I'll, I'll win money. And they're like, Oh, well, we, we have the right to, to that money. Very weird stuff. Um, so the Overwatch League also includes a code of conduct for player behavior, which I actually do like these sort of things because, again, these people are going to be um, role models for millions of people. They need to have a code of conduct. They need to keep it 
keep it legit. Um, kicking off with a section how the league can decide any and all punishments, which can re range from reprimands, fines, suspensions, dis uh, debarment, and or disqualification, with the exact punishment getting determined by the league. So again, someone who's in charge of the league will decide how bad whatever that person did for their image is, and they will knock it out. Um, and so a lot of that stuff's the same. Like you can't flip people off. Um, you can't, uh, team members and owners may not use obscene or offensive gestures or profanity in their tags, player handles, game chat, live play communications, lobby chat, shoulder content, which I don't know what that is. Is that when you're over the shoulder watching somebody interviews or other public facing communications of any kind. So that's going to also include social media, I'm sure. So you're basically just. I don't know, neutering these players, uh, uh, characters and, and free will. And I know you have to do that to an extent, but it seems a little, this seems to be pushing a little far. Uh, let's see the, the rule book gets more specific about banning illegal drugs, such as alcohol or marijuana, uh, is, but if you're over 21, alcohol is not illegal. So I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how they enforce that, I guess. Obviously, if it's illegal for you, you can't do it. But I, So does that mean someone over 21 cannot consume alcohol uh, if you're an Overwatch pro? I have to look into that more. Um, the rulebook does permit prescription drugs so long as they're actually prescribed to the player in question. Unless the prescription is for marijuana, then it's not allowed. Um, the Code of Conduct includes a predictable section talking about harassment and discrimination based on race, color, religion, gender, national origin, age, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, or any other class or characteristic. Um, any false, defamatory, libelous, or slanderous remarks, comments, or statements against the League or other players, staffers, and sponsors, the League has also banned gambling on Overwatch matches, and there's even a rule against fantasy esports leagues, which I didn't know were a thing, but apparently that makes sense they would be involving overwatch if they involve winning any sort of prize so they can't compete in like fantasy overwatch <laughs> fantasy owl uh this part though which was the end of it was very weird and i want to read the whole thing and it's in entirety here because it's very weird and it's a little off-putting to me so the rule book lastly has a section about how the league owns the rights to turn the players entire lives into a reality show if they so choose Quote, if the league office elects to create reality programming, this paperwork grants the right and license of the league office or its designee to film, to televise, webcast, photograph, identify, and otherwise record each team member and his or her daily life activities and interactions with others using persistent 24-7 cameras that may be placed in the team house, training facility, competitive venue, and other locations frequented by team members. Um provided that no such filming or recording will occur in any team member's bathrooms, end quote. So what they're basically saying is, at any point, they can start a reality show and start filming these guys 24-7, and they've already agreed to that by being an Overwatch League player. Now, when you do things like that, you can't do things like that in the NFL. You have, and we just talked about this in the last story, you have a player's union, which argues against stuff. Are we going to see an Overwatch League player's union that will fight back against some of the stuff that will, one, fight your battles for you if you felt like you were wrongly punished? Or two, what if you, you know, what if you don't want to be on camera? You know, what if you have anxiety about being on camera 24-7? You know, what if you just want to live in a house and, and be unplugged? At any time they want, they can decide that your life is so interesting. Now, again, it talked about being in the team houses or training facilities. That would obviously make people go, you know what, I'll get my own apartment then. And I'm not going to deal with, I'm not going to deal with being recorded while I'm at home sleeping. You know, it's like, like it's some sort of the real world or, or, you know, 
um, Big Brother sort of situation. Just absolutely asinine. The Jersey Shore type situation. And so... Uh, Pro players are granted the league permission to license their likeness and gaming handles and even their public persona, gameplay data, and statistics, biographical information, backstory, and any streams of Blizzard games. That includes deals including derivative works. So if the league decides to make a hit cartoon based on a player's life, that player wouldn't get anything for it because they've given up their likeness rights. I mean, that's it, it's, it's a very good deal for the league. And again, it's just starting off. That's how these things start. The league is fronting all the money. They're going to get a bunch of extra stuff in the deal until the Overwatch League players can essentially learn how to fight back. Is that unionizing or is that just becoming so big that you don't want to lose your most popular players? They're going to have to shift some of this eventually. But this is this is what happens when you start a league. The league makes the rules because there's so many people that just want to be a part of it. Once that starts working out, you'll start to see a little more of that stuff changing. And then lastly, uh, there was finally an update. This update actually came uh, Friday night. It was uh, from the Overwatch League spokesperson. They sent a following statement about the leaked documents. Quote, the league rules, which include the code of conduct, is a living document created with input from teams and players. They've had a copy of the rules document since the inception of the league, and we posted a summary of it on overwatchleague.com back in February. Being a living document, it's evolved over time based on activity and extensive private discussions with the teams. As with other professional leagues, we don't discuss line-by-line -line rules uh, matters publicly, but if you have any questions about the rules, we refer you to the summary we posted several weeks ago, end quote. So that is their response saying, you know, this, is, this, this document was written by players, teams, and Overwatch League officials is what they're saying. I doubt many players helped write this stuff. And so then you start to ask yourself, well, and so I wanted to look up because I wanted to know what the average Overwatch player makes. Because if if you can't really get paid streaming anymore, um, because recently there was the, the story, which I didn't really cover, but it was awesome still, was that uh, Ninja, uh, a Twitch streamer, he recently streamed with Drake uh, playing Fortnite, and they broke all these uh, Twitch uh, stream... Um, records with how many people they had so he said recently on uh on nbc that he makes five hundred thousand dollars a month five let that number settle in for a minute five hundred thousand dollars a month he makes streaming and i want to say the last time i saw he was over two hundred thousand subscribers which you get something like two bucks or 250 per subscriber so, like, he's almost to a million dollars a month now. It's incredible. He's just an ex-Halo... He's an ex-Halo professional player who went full-time streamer. So, the reason I brought that up was, what do the Overwatch players make? Because should they stay in the league for a couple years, get a fan following, and then just switch to Twitch? Because these Overwatch leagues, it prevents them from making extra money doing certain things. So, uh, the league minimum for an Overwatch player is $50,000 a year... So $50,000 a year, okay, with health and health benefits and stuff. Now, some players, um, the San Francisco Shock, Sinatra, he makes $150,000 a year. That's half, that's, that's, or sorry, that's a third, less than a third of what Ninja makes in a month. This guy makes in a whole year. So how is Overwatch going to keep its players from essentially jumping ship to just be full-time streamers? after they get popular they're gonna have to pay them more to stay or they're gonna have to give them some sort of royalties to the league you know like they're gonna have to get a percentage of the profits that the league makes very very interesting stuff going forward and how they're gonna be able to hold this all together because nobody wants to watch people that aren't the best players playing that game 
you see downturn years in the NFL. You see downturn years in other competitive when the competition isn't as strong. When you have a lot more worse teams, you don't have as many great players. You see people turning off because people want to see the best people play in that league. That's why, you know, certain low-level leagues don't get the same ratings as the top because the top is the best of the best, and that's what you want. And so if the best of the best start leaving because they can make more money streaming on their own, then what do you have? You know, then your league is just a bunch of B squatters getting beat by people streaming on Twitch. You know what I mean? So really, really interesting stuff to think about. But again, uh, I don't watch a lot of esports. I, I mostly watch, if I'm going to watch, I watch some Rocket League. I watched some PUBG over the weekend, uh, which was really boring actually to watch because everyone just floats in the water. I don't know. It was really stupid. And, uh, but Rocket League is always a fun time and Overwatch obviously more action oriented. So it's a good time. But anyway, that is, uh, that's a little bit about the code of conduct rules that were leaked uh, for the official Overwatch League. Now, uh, the second to last story I want to talk about is the uh, Street Fighter. Street Fighter's coming to TV, everybody, which I find really interesting because it was already a series on YouTube. In fact, a, a quite good series. Um, they did a YouTube miniseries called Street Fighter Assassin's Fist, and it is awesome. It's about two and a half hours long complete if you watch all the episodes. It breaks down a bunch of the fighters and their backstories. The fighting was actually pretty good for a YouTube series. The effects were pretty good, and, and it's really fun to watch. So I highly recommend Street Fighter Assassin's Fist. You can actually find it and watch it for free on YouTube. So it's very, very good. And so uh, apparently that wasn't good enough, though, because uh, Deadline had a story that uh, Capcom's legendary fighting game franchise is being developed for TV by production company Entertainment One. Uh, and this is the quote from uh, company president Mark Gordon. Quote, Street Fighter is a global tour-de-force franchise having garnered immense worldwide commercial success and built a vast devoted fan base that has only grown through its 30-year legacy. We are thrilled to be teaming up with Joey, Jacqueline, and Mark, who are already so deeply connected to this brand, to bring this adored story to television audiences everywhere. A particular strength of Street Fighter is the wide range of ethnically diverse characters and powerful women featured in the game. It will allow us to build an inclusive, engaging TV universe. So, uh, that's not wrong. In fact, there's a lot of great characters. I like the idea that it's a TV series because it makes sense to me that in TV you could have time to develop characters more than you do in just like an hour and a half movie. So that's very, very good. Uh... So what I'd like to see, I guess, out of this, I have not much faith that it'll be very good or that it'll even ever come out. We still have that Halo movie or the Halo TV series is apparently being worked on. The Witcher TV series is apparently still being worked on, even though that's technically based off of the books, not based off of the video games that the books, that the, or the not based off the video game that was based off the books. And uh, so I hope it's very good. I always hope that it's good. I doubt it will be, but I hope it is. But I have a few things that I would find interesting. One, I don't think they should just make it some sort of deep web of conspiracies and stuff. Make it, and actually a commenter on the article said this, and I want to give them props, because it was actually exactly what I was thinking. Uh, it was a Colgrim uh, said basically that don't make it, make it about the tournament. Like that should legitimately be it. Everyone's in the tournament maybe for a different reason, and that's where you get your drama and entertainment, but make it about the tournament. That's what brings all these weird people together, and, and I love that idea. Um, what I would do if this were my show, my idea would be I would have every episode, the, the first few episodes would start with a fight between two characters. So let's say first you've got Ryu versus 
Uh, I don't know. Let's just pick somebody who'd probably lose quickly. E Honda. So let's do. Well, let's do Ryu versus Zangief. Let's just let's just put out there. Ryu's gonna win. Okay, you already know this because he's gonna go to the end. It's fine. Final battle's gonna be between Ryu and Ken, and then the winner's gonna fight M Bison. No problem. Um, but say like you have a, a scene where Ryu starts off and he gets like a really good hit in and knocks Zangief down. When Zang Zangief knocks down, it goes to like a flashback of that character's backstory and why he's in the tournament. Then that character gets up, they start some more fighting, he knocks Ryu down with some sort of big like pile driver, a big suplex. Ryu then has like a flashback of what's going on in his head. That's how you run that episode. The next episode might be Ken versus Blanca. And you have the same thing happen as they're fighting throughout the fight as they get hit, they're reminding things. Uh, and, and so that's how you kind of, and then you progress the tournament. So after Blanca loses, he's out. You know, um, you can still have the character in the show, but you know, he's out of the tournament and then the tournament's progressing and you build to this final showdown, maybe between Ken and Ryu. Right. And this is how I envision this as they're fighting each other. Every punch that they hit, it does a quick flashback of them training together and fighting together. It's just really like, you can hit this really cool, like emotional aspect and this really cool backstory while the, the main story is going on. Uh, they won't do it that way because I, I just know they won't. Uh, it's my idea. I think it'd be awesome. Uh, but they probably won't do it. But it's neat that a lot of the video game stuff is still getting credit. I hope that it gets the budget it needs to be successful. Because oftentimes stuff like this, it's a risk, and they give it a crappy budget, and then they wonder why it's not successful. I mean, I don't wonder. I know exactly why it's not successful. <laughs> but, you know, low-budget shit, you know. But um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so Street Fighter's coming to TV, everybody. Keep an eye out for that. And then lastly, uh, there's a lot to this story, but I'm not going to cover a ton of it. But basically... Um, so I'm going to go back a little bit on this. So Ubi, this is the headline. Ubisoft fends off Vivendi takeover bid through Tencent partnership. So uh, Vivendi, if you recall, used to be partners with Activision. And then Activision essentially bought itself back from Vivendi and they split off. So Vivendi uh, is, a, is a French company and they have their hands in a lot of different things. They do a lot of different. And that was them working with Activision was kind of their, their video game side of it. Well, once Activision broke away, um, they set their sights on Ubisoft, and they were actually, let me see what it was here, they they own 27.27% of Ubisoft through, I, it was, there were a lot of different stories, but basically they were buying up as much as they could when they could, things would go on sale, they'd buy up anybody's stock they could in a bid for a hostile takeover, which Ubisoft was constantly trying to uh, fight against, which is interesting, and an interesting part of this story is that uh, Ubisoft is co-founded by the, uh, uh, the, the Guillemots. So like it's, uh, they're French guys. Um, and so, which is funny because they used to own a company called Gameloft, which was also bought by Vivendi amid a takeover. So they've already been taken over once by Vivendi. So then they, you know, then they became, you know, in their ownership in Ubisoft and they taken care of that. So it almost seemed like Vivendi has a vengeance against these guys. Cause now they're coming after their other company. Well, through many different things, uh, Vivendi was trying to take over. Ubisoft was holding them off through court cases, through stock freezes, anything, any trick they could pull to not get hostily taken over. And, uh, which was kind of awesome, uh, because over, it was over the last three years, uh, Vivendi spent 794 million to acquire its shares of Ubisoft and it's now selling it for $2 billion. So Vivendi's making money, so don't shed any tears for Vivendi. Um, it has no other comments, though, after that. Uh, quote, the evolution, this is from the 
CEO of Ubisoft. The evolution in our shareholding is great news for Ubisoft. It is made possible thanks to the outstanding execution of our strategy and the decisive support of Ubisoft talents, players, and shareholders. Basically, he's thanking everybody for not selling their stock off. Um, Ubisoft said today it's confirming the financial targets for its 2017-18 and 2018-19 fiscal years. Uh, so Ubisoft is buying some of Vivendi stock back, 8%. Uh, Guillermo Brothers SE, which is a company that represents the Guillermo Brothers, they're buying 2.7% back uh, for, from cash. And uh, which uh, and then the interesting part, though, was that the, uh, a Chinese company called Tencent, they've lately been getting a lot into publishing American games in China. And they also did, uh, they did Capcom's Monster Hunter Online there in China, did a bunch of other stuff. So Tencent has partnered with them. And so they're going to, uh, Tencent is valued at more than $550 billion. Okay. That's, that's what that company's worth. When 27% of Ubisoft just sold for 2 billion. So roughly 2.7. So you're looking at like $10 billion, what Ubisoft is worth roughly. Tencent is worth $550 billion. Um, so here's some of the things that they own. They own League of Legends developer Riot Games. They have um, they have a, a significant stake in publisher Supercell uh, in Epic Games. They own forty percent of Epic. Um, they also Tencent partnered with PUBG uh, to publish the game in China, and it made the mobile version of PUBG, which is now worldwide. So, uh, very very interesting stuff. Uh, so I guess it's good that Ubisoft is no longer worried about a Vivendi takeover, but they kind of sold their soul to the giant Chinese company Tencent. So we'll see how that works out. But for now, Ubisoft is in the clear. They don't have to worry about a takeover anymore. I don't think it really affected our games or our business at all, but it was still an interesting story nonetheless and still something kind of fun to uh, to talk about. Uh, okay, so that's the podcast for today, but we're going to talk about our game of the week, um, which I did not prepare in advance like I always forget to do. And let's just do... Yeah. All right. The Punisher for the Sega Genesis. So this uh, is the heyday. I'm trying to get the glare off there. This is the heyday of arcade style beat-em-ups. Capcom was king. Capcom and Konami were king of the beat-em-ups. This one's really, really incredible. So uh, you play as either Punisher or Nick Fury in a two-player game. Uh, and you go through, you beat the hell out of a bunch of guys, uh, like Final Fight or Streets of Rage. And uh, really, really awesome. Incredibly rare game, too. Uh, they didn't make very many. It uh, includes a free Punisher Skull tattoo, if you're lucky enough to have not used that or had it used in the copy you bought. Um, I don't think I have one. Yeah, I don't have a tattoo in mine. Um, but uh, an incredible game. Uh, very much worth the money. It's it, Complete, it goes for around $150 to $200 now. Uh, but it's very good. It's like I said, classic beat em up, arcade beat em up. Go play it. Really, really good. Um, if you're ever at my store, we have an arcade with the arcade version on it, so you can come check that out too. As always, I want to thank everybody for watching. Uh, this was a lot of fun today. I know I talked a lot about the uh, the Overwatch League and the unionizing, and not much on the later stories, but it was a really good one today. So as always, I appreciate it. if you can like, share, subscribe to us on Facebook. It makes a huge, or excuse me, on YouTube, uh, you can like us on Facebook as well at the drop rate. Um, but on YouTube, if you could share, uh, subscribe, we'd really, really appreciate it. If you're listening to this on iTunes or SoundCloud, if you go to droprate.life, or if you go to YouTube and search for the drop rate, you'll see our logo, the yellow and gray. If you could subscribe to us, even if you're listening to this on iTunes or or SoundCloud, I'd really, really appreciate that as well. 
Um, but either way, I always appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. It was been a blast as always. We'll talk to you again next week and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye.